Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and beginning our reading at verse 7. And continuing in our reading to verse 17. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. This is God's holy word. But what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom... I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an ensample. Amen. God's holy word. We would do well to take heed. Now, I want to focus your attention on one particular verse that we read in this passage, and that verse is verse 12. In this verse, I believe what we have is a summary of Paul's Christian testimony. Look what it says. 
not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul was familiar with the concept of apprehension. He practiced it towards Christians. He tells us in Acts 26, many of the Lord's people, he put in prison. He apprehended them. But here Paul says, I was apprehended. I was apprehended. And now my business is to apprehend, to lay hold of, to obtain, to seize that for which I was apprehended. This is his, a summary of his Christian testimony. What event, you've read your Bible, what event in Paul's life would you describe as an arrest? That's essentially what this word means. Now, some of us in this room, we know what it's like to be arrested or detained by the police, right? One thing for sure about that situation, you're not in control, are you? You're passive. Someone else is very much in control. What event in Paul's life would you describe as an apprehension, an arrest? Turn to Acts chapter 9. <laughs> and we'll see. Paul describes his apprehension in verse in chapter 9. We'll back up a little and read verse, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, chapter 8 comes, at, comes after the event of the killing of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen. Uh, a careless Bible reading might make you think that this was Paul's only time that he ever uh, persecuted Christians. But if you read closely, you'll find this was his habit. This was just like exhibit A for what Paul had, did, had done. Look what it says in Acts chapter 1. And Paul was consenting unto his death, speaking about the death of Stephen. And then it says, At that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering into every house and hailing, that means to drag, to tow, to sweep, to draw, to force away, hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Saul was a piece of work, an enemy of Christ. Let's skip to chapter 9, verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. He was familiar with the concept of apprehension. He was apprehending Christians wasn't he? And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth, 
and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? He didn't know who he was. Who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, I imagine so. Jesus? I thought he was a blasphemer. He's the Lord? Trembling and astonished. He said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What do you find here? You find Paul apprehended and Paul seeking to apprehend. The Lord apprehended Paul and what immediately does he do? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? So now his business becomes to apprehend that for which he was apprehended of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul never got over this. He never got over this. We find the history of this event recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. But it's not the first time you mentioned later on in the book of Acts. You go to chapter 22, and he's speaking about it again. You remember what was going on there? He was in the temple. There was a riot. The Jews came to kill him. The Romans came to his rescue. They're hauling him off. And now he's, he says, can I talk to the people? <laughs> Always the preacher. Why? That was what he was apprehended unto. The Lord laid hold of him to make him a preacher and to turn people from darkness to light. And here he is in the midst of this hubbub, this uproar. His life's had threatened. And what, he said, what does he say to the centurion? Hey, can I speak to these guys? That was what he was called to do. So he's going to lay hold. And he gives his testimony. He does. And then it's broken up because there's another Jewish riot. Imagine that. And then Acts 26, we find there, he does it again. He shares his testimony. And this time he shares his testimonies before some of the uppity-ups of this world, uh, Festus and King Agrippa. And he shares it again, what God had done for him. But that's not the only place. If you continue in your uh, in your uh, canvassing of Scripture, you'll find that it's also, he alludes to it in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is a wonderful shorthand, verse 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles, he says, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He never forgot it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He was apprehended by grace. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. That's not boasting. That was true. He was apprehended. And now he was apprehending, laying hold of that for which he'd been taken in hand by Jesus. He was laboring more abundantly than thy all, but yet he says it wasn't me, but it was the grace of God which was in me. 1 Corinthians 15. 
But it doesn't stop there. He refers to it again in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. He said, For ye have heard of my conversation, that is my lifestyle, in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But... When it pleased God, he was apprehended. Who separated me? This is God as active. It pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. He was apprehended. God was very active. This was God's purpose. This was what God was doing. To reveal his son in me. That, it was to an end. It was to a purpose. God's arrest of Paul had an end in view, had a purpose in view. God had a life for Paul, and it was not the life he'd planned. To reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. That was what he was called unto, and that what Paul was laying hold of. He was apprehended by God. And now he is apprehending. He's laying hold of that for which God had called him. But we're not done. He does it again. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this is so precious here. Because what we find in 1 Timothy 1, not only does Paul, again, speak out of the grace that God had showed towards him in Jesus Christ, but he declares that God did this for you. Christian, did you know that God saved the Apostle Paul in the way he did for you? It's true. It's for you. Don't just abstractly sit back here and read about Paul and say, boy, he was really a car wreck. Man, what a, that's amazing that God did that thing. Don't just read it in this detached third person sort of way. It was for you. Now, what is it for you that's in Paul's conversion? Well, look what it says. 1 Timothy 1. Verse 12, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who before was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying. Your ears should perk up. And worthy of all acceptation. It's faithful. And it's universal, all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I'm the foremost, he says. This is why he came, to save sinners, and I'm the foremost among them. Now listen, how be it for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Are you in that category? Are you one who after Paul's conversion came to believe in Jesus to life everlasting? Well, this pattern's for you. And what is it to teach you? God saves wicked sinners. He saves the foremost of sinners. He saves the chief of sinners. He can save you. 
Don't ever let your, the, the greatness of your sin will be no barrier to your salvation if you believe in Jesus. Get that fixed in your mind. The Lord saved Paul in the way he did it so that it would be fixed in your mind. So this is wonderful. This is glorious. This is magnificent. And it's all packed in this tight package in verse 12. That I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Jesus Christ. So let's look after that, after that analysis, review, observation of Paul's testimony. Let's go back to our passage in Philippians 3. And let's take a closer look at the passage itself. You remember we read Philippians 3, verses 7 through 17. And now we want to look in detail about what it's telling us. We focused in on verse 12, but now let's pan back and look at the whole scene. Let's look at this chapter and see where it takes us. I want us to consider the passage under four headings, all right? In Philippians 3, we find Paul discussing a radical revaluation. A radical revaluation. We find also he talks about an imperfect pressing. Imperfect pressing. And then we find, thirdly, a single-minded pursuit. And then finally, we see Paul as a pattern. Paul as a pattern. So let's look at those things one by one. First of all, we find in the passage, Philippians 3, a radical revaluation. And we look at it, we see it verse 7, and we find it right there. And how much more radical could you get? But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Gain is reevaluated. And now it's Determined to be lost. Can you get more radical than that? We thought it was gold. It's actually manure. That's remarkable. A radical revaluation. Now, what's he talking about? What things were gained to me? What has he got in mind here? that he thought was so great and now he thinks is actually a liability. Well, let's glance back in the passage to verses 4 through 6, and there I believe we'll find what he has in mind. What is this that Paul thought was gain? Now he counts it as loss. Look at it. what it says in verse 4. It says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, whatever this was, this gain, it can be described in this way, confidence in the flesh. He had this confidence, but it was misplaced. It was confidence in the flesh. He counted it gain. It was actually loss. Though I might have also... Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he hath wherever he might trust in the flesh, I'm more... And then he gives us five things. Ritual, race, party, passion, and performance. How's that? Ritual and race. Party and passion. 
and performance. These were these things he had confidence in. This was his gain. What was the ritual? Well, he was circumcised the eighth day. What was the race? Well, he was of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What was the party? It was the party of the Pharisees, as touching the law of Pharisees. What was his passion? Well, his zeal for the law, his persecution of the church. What was his performance? Well, man, he was really good at keeping that outward code of the law. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. No one could put a finger on Paul. He was clean. This radical reevaluation. This was his confidence. This was his gain. But now he says, for Christ, it's, I'm counting it loss. But then he gets even broader. Look what he does in verse 8. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss. He brought, he, he pans back. Now everything's in this bucket, this loss bucket. It's all loss. It's all loss. How could he say that? How could he call all things loss? He says, I count all things loss for the excellency. It's in contrast to something. It's all loss compared to what? The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them. But dung, now the Bible is pretty graphic sometimes. I count them as dung. It's garbage. It's refuge. It's it's. It's, it's rotten. It's, it's, it's rotten, decaying stuff that's worthy to be thrown in the trash. That's what it is. Count them but dung, that I might win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. And that's the key. How could Paul say, it's all dung? It's all dung. It's all worthy to be thrown away. Because it was his confidence. He was seeking to be to establish his own righteousness before God. And in that bucket of gain, it was all, all of on the in that bucket was written on the outside, my righteousness before God. My ritual, my race, my party, my passion, my performance. This is my confidence. This is what I'm, this is my gain. He says, it's all worthy to be thrown in the trash. Why did he count his former gain to be a loss? It was because of this radical revaluation. He describes it in verse 3 of the chapter. Look up a bit before, in, uh, in, before the, our passage in uh, Philippians 3. He says, we're the circumcision. In other words, we're the true Jews. It's not these guys over here that are at war with Jesus. It's us. We're the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. You see that? What things were gained to me, this confidence in the flesh, I've counted loss for Christ. For Christ. For Christ. Why did he do it? Why was it counted loss for Christ? that he might know him, he says in verse 10, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So what do we find in Philippians 3? We find a radical revaluation. And what was it that brought about this radical revaluation? Paul was apprehended. That's it. 
What else do we see? We find also in the passage an imperfect pressing. Verse 12, not only a radical revaluation, but an imperfect pressing. Look what he says in verse 12. Not as though, let's start at verse 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, verse 12, not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect, but I follow after, I pursue, I follow, I endeavor, I earnestly, I press forward. I follow after that I may apprehend that also for which I'm apprehended of Jesus Christ. Brethren, I count not myself to, apprehend, to have apprehended. What do you see here? You see an imperfect pressing. It's like he's saying two things. I'm pressing on, but I'm not there. I'm pressing on, but it's not perfect. I'm pressing on, but I haven't attained. That's not his righteousness, is it? His pressing on is not his righteousness. He doesn't pretend that it's perfect. He tells you it's got holes in it. He tells you it's faulty. He knows it's faulty, but that's not his righteousness. If it were, he would be back to the flesh bucket, right? The confidence in the flesh bucket. But he's left that. He's had this radical reevaluation. It's not my race. It's not my ritual. It's not my party, my passion, or my performance, even as a Christian. It's not. I, but I'm pressing on, that's for sure, apprehended and then seeking to apprehend. So we've got this radical revaluation in the passage, Philippians 3. We've got this imperfect pressing, but we also have a single-minded pursuit. And could you say it any plainer? This one thing I do. You think that's single-minded? You think he was a man of one thing? You think he was mono-minded? Do you think he was focused? Do you think he was oblivious to all these distractions? This one thing I do. Now, what did that look like? It looked like forgetting, forgetting those things that are behind. It looked like reaching, reaching forth unto those things which are before. It looked like pressing, pursuing, following, endeavoring, and pressing toward the mark for what? The prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He was called by God. He was called to a life. And now he's seeking to, what's the word? Apprehend that for which he was apprehended of Christ. So as we continue in Philippians 3, we see the radical revaluation, the imperfect pressing, the single-minded pursuit, and finally, we see Paul as a pattern. Now, we've seen that already, haven't we? The Lord saved Paul in the way he did to give us an example of how deep God's grace can reach to save the foremost of sinners. But he's still a pattern. Even in another way, he's a pattern for us, believers. He's a pattern for us in how to live the Christian life. He says, let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. Paul was seeking to apprehend that for which Christ had laid hold of him. And that's what he wants you to do. That's why God set him forth in this way. He's an example for you, believer. He wants you to be thus minded. He wants you to think the same thing. He wants you to think like him. 
Well, so that's mighty arrogant. I want to have to be like Paul. I want to be my own guy. Well, it's not arrogant if he's right, particularly if you're wrong. It's just wisdom. It's like, look, I'm really kind of stupid and wrong. I better change my mind. Isn't that what repentance is about? Metanoia, change of mind. And what a profound thing. People never change their mind. Unless God intervenes. Metanoia, change of mind. Paul is a pattern. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And if, anything ye be, if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind, there's that word again, let us mind, let us think, let us regard the same thing. Brethren, you, you're going to get this real, you're gonna, <laughs> he's giving it to you with both barrels. Followers of me, think the same thing, think the same thing. He's, you, you better get it. Brethren, be followers together of me. Be co-imitators. Co-imitators. You mean Paul's an imitator? Yeah, he's a, he is. Who's he imitating? He's imitating Jesus. That's why his example has force. You see, Jesus is the one who set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. That was his purpose. That what he, that's what he was sent to do by the Father. And he wants you to, and Paul's following Jesus. And Paul says, you follow me as I'm following Christ. Be followers together of me and mark them. That is, view attentively, regard, have respect to them who are walking, them who walk, rather, which walk. So if you have us for an example. So, that's the outline. That's something of the passage. What should we think? What should we believe? What should we do in light of what it says? This is not just for your entertainment. I've heard my sermon now. I'm going to go watch Jeopardy and drink Coke. Is that your part? Is that, should, should that be your response to the Word of God? No. It should be you examine yourself. Examine yourself in light of what's been said. In light of what's been said, what should you think? What should you believe? What should you do? Well, you should think, as a preliminary thing, you should think that Paul is a pattern for me. That's what you should think. Did you get that from the passage? I hope you did. It was all over the place. Paul is a pattern for believers. He is. Paul was a pattern, is a pattern for believers. Paul was apprehended, and there's something like that, something that's analogous to that for all believers. And what is it? God intervenes. Why are you a Christian? Well, you know, I just was, I just decided to turn over a new leaf, you know. Radical makeover. That's what, I, that's what it was all about. I just decided, you know, was that it? You know, for some people, that's all their religion is, is they're just kind of, they're just kind of, they're getting, they're domesticated. That happens to people. 
they're young, maybe they're in church, they get to be a teenager, they, 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 they go wild for a while and they're out there in the world and then they get married and, you know, that really didn't work really good with kids and keeping down a job and also, I mean, it's hard, you know, it just does, it doesn't fit. So, oh yeah, let's start going to church and those guys, and let's get all, let's kind of start coloring in the lines now and straightening up and yeah, we can go to church, yeah, I guess we can go to prayer meeting and There's no rebirth. They're just domesticated. They're not converted. There's a difference. Paul was not domesticated. <laughs> he was thoroughly undomesticated. Paul was apprehended. He was laid hold of. And there's something analogous to that in the life of every believer. God intervenes and nothing is the same again. Amen. That's the way it is. How do we know that? Well, look what it says in Ezekiel chapter 36. He describes this. What will God do in the new covenant? He says in verse 26, a new heart will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you and heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk. Cause me to walk? What happened to my free will, man? Well, who told you you, had, who told you, you were free? I mean, you're free to be as the crummy person you are. You're free to express the wickedness of your heart. Free to do righteousness? No, man, you're a slave. The Bible says you're a slave. The Bible says you're a slave to your sin to do what's right. To follow the Lord, to love his word, to love his law, man, that's, that, you can't do that. Why? You don't have it in you. That's why you need a renovation. That's why you need a new birth. He says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Verse 29, I will also save you from all your uncleannesses. Verse 31, then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves. Loathe yourselves. You talk about a difference in attitude. Man, in the world, guys my age, go up to them, introduce yourself. Make sure you got plenty of time because they're going to tell you for as long as you stand there about how great they are. I mean, it's like clockwork. You can predict it. And then when they stop to draw breath and you try to say something, be prepared to be thoroughly ignored. As they continue their litany of their imagined greatness. Loathe yourselves? How does that happen? You've got to have a radical revaluation. How will you get that? Only if you're apprehended by Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2. And you, verse 1, hath he quickened, that means to be made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, God intervenes. God apprehends you. God comes in power. He changes you. Look what he says in verse 4. 
But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. See how active God is here. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not what you do, it's what Christ does. He apprehends you. It's his work. He's the Savior, not you. It's his work. It's not you ginning something up. It might even surprise you. Twenty years ago, there's some in this room, maybe 40 years, maybe longer, would you have ever imagined that you'd be in church on a Sunday morning? Here you are. How in the world did that happen? But when it pleased God, when it pleased God, when it pleased God, who apprehended you, who changed you, who saved you. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that of not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. We are something God has made. We're his work. That's real. That's true. You're not what you were. You're something different. How did it happen? You were apprehended. Yes, you were apprehended. Like Paul was apprehended. There's an analogy between what happened to Paul and what happened to you, believer, what happened to you? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He apprehended us, and now we're set to apprehend unto good works. He's made us something, and now we want to lay hold of what he's made us. We want to be who he called us to be. We want to live the life he called us to live unto. We're created we are his workmanship and created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God, he's still behind it all, hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He apprehended us unto good works, and now we want to lay hold of those good works. He determined it before the foundation of the world. He has a path that's set out before us, and what do we want to do? We want to put our feet in that path. How do we learn where those steps are? This book, that's where he tells us. That's where he shows us. Paul's purpose was to apprehend that for which Christ had apprehended him. And he calls believers to do the same. 2 Corinthians 5, I love this. If any man's in Christ, he is a new creature. Apprehended. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And now Ephesians 3, what does Paul pray for the believers? Now, this is very insightful. If you look at Ephesians 3, he uses this apprehend word. It's translated comprehend in the passage, but it's the same, um, it's the same word. Verse 8. Well, let's back up a little. Verse 7. Let's go to verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the, unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. He's praying for them. 
What else does he pray? Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. What else does he pray? That ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend or apprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. What did Paul say? He wanted to do, I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. What does he pray for the believers? That, that with all the saints, that ye might be able to comprehend, apprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. Do you see the parallel there? Paul wanted to lay hold of this. He's praying that you would as well. He is. So what do we want to see as the foundation for these applications is that there is an analogy between Paul's experience and your experience. There is. He was apprehended. You've been apprehended if you're in Christ. He was called to lay hold of that for which God laid hold of him. You're called the same thing, brother, sister. You're called to lay hold of that for which he laid hold of you. That's your life. That's it. And so what does that look like? What does that look like for you? Have you been apprehended by Christ? Has Christ obtained you? Has Christ taken hold of you? Has Christ seized you? Has God done something? Do you have a B.C. and an A.D.? How about that? You know what I'm talking about. Do you have a B.C. and an A.D.? Not that he stopped you on the Damascus Road. No, we're not talking that way. But did he stop you? Did he? I hope so. Did he stop you? Not that he spoke in an audible voice to you, or that you saw a vision. Not that you heard his voice speaking audibly from heaven. But he spoke to you. He did. How do we know that? John chapter 10, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Some of us know what it's like to read the Bible and it's just being, oh, it's just my, I just, what I don't, I mean, just, I don't know. I don't know what this is. I don't get it. I don't know. It's just, I can't get, I don't know what it, it's just, it's not my book, man. I don't know what it's saying. I don't know why people read it. I don't understand it. Doesn't do anything for me. In fact, I'm think, I think I'm going to quit. And something changes. That the word of God, it fastens on your heart. It illuminates your mind. There's conviction. There's light. There's power. It becomes your meat and your drink. How does that happen? Apprehended by Jesus Christ. He comes to you, and it's real. He calls out your sin. Why are you persecuting me? I made you, and you hate me. I've given you every good thing you ever had, and you never thanked me. I'll give myself to you and all good things, but you'd rather have your sins. Why will you die? 
Why would you choose your own destruction? But the wonder here is that your sin cannot stop Christ from apprehending you. Paul's the example of that. Was Paul... Did they give an invitation and Paul walked forward and the preacher stood down and shook him by the hand and whispered in his ear and they whispered in each other's ear and then he signed a card and he started coming to church? No, no. no. He might have come down the aisle to kill the preacher. He might have done that and then hit the door. But no, no, no. He was not a lightweight. He was like full throttle, wicked, rebellious, anti-Christian. But you know, that didn't keep God from saving him. We have an almighty Savior. Your sin cannot stop Christ from apprehending you. Now, that's wonderful. And if you reflect on your life, some of you, you can look back and say, man, I can't believe I'm in the kingdom. I just don't know that happened. I'm, I'm so glad. I mean, if I was someone else who knew me, I would have given up on me. But your sin didn't hinder Christ from saving you. And neither will your ignorance. The Lord comes to Paul and he says, who are you? Lord, who are you? Sometimes we talk to sinners and it's just like they are so ignorant. They just have these crazy notions about God. And it's just like, where in the world do you start? I mean, this guy, it's, it's alien invasion, and it's, I mean, it's just all this nutty stuff, and uh, it's just like, I don't even, you know, he, oh, boy, and he reads the Bible. I think this means some, this nutty thing that I saw on the Internet, and, it's, and I think it means, you know, it's just like, oh, I don't even know what to do for this guy. I'm just, but, you know, ignorance is no match for Jesus. He can come. He can enlighten the mind. But God, who caused light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where do you see it? In the face of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. Ignorance can't stop Christ from apprehending you. And notice also, and I think you saw it as we, come, as we saw it in the passage, when he comes, he comes as the Lord. He, he shows up and he starts telling people what to do. He doesn't ask their permission. He doesn't give them a list of four options. Which one of these would you like to do? No, he says, I'm appeared for you for this purpose. He says, I will make you. I will. I, and you read the Ezekiel passage. I will, I will, I will, I will. He has an agenda. He has a life. And he's going to have his way. He's going to have his way. He comes as the Lord, not your servant, but as the sovereign. He comes with a call. I have appeared to make you, to take you in hand. What did he say in Ephesians? We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ unto good works. He comes successfully. He will have his way with you. He will. Salvation is not something we do. It's not. It's something God does. He does it in spite of us. He does it in spite of our rebellion. In spite of our rebellion, he subdues us. 
In spite of our ignorance, he enlightens us. In spite of our hatred, he imparts love. In spite of our fear of man, he gives the fear of God. And all of a sudden, we become courageous. We've been some, we just been, we, be, we run from people, we run from this situation, run, we have, we have, we just, we're just cowards by nature, but he gives you the fear of God, and all of a sudden, you've got a backbone like a, like a steel rod, and you'll stand against the world. Why will you do it? Because he saves sinners. He makes new creatures. The fear of God. He imparts, delivers you from the fear of man. In spite of our unbelief, he imparts a true faith. You see, he's in control. But there are some people, what they call Christianity is something they control. They choose their religion, the type, the quantity, the character, the style, the intensity, the commitment level, they can dial it up, they can dial it down, they can turn the volume up or tone it down to a whisper or turn it off completely and go do some nasty, stinking thing that they want to do. And then Sunday comes around, whoa, here we are back, turn it on again, turn up the volume, hands go up and everything's well, oh, come it's Friday night, let's go, okay, we're going to get down, just turn it off, here we go. They're completely in control. They're working all the controls, they're working all the knobs. But real salvation is not something you control. It controls you. What did Paul say? He said, the love of Christ constrains me. It makes me do things otherwise I would never have done. Some of you know what that's like. I remember I hadn't been awakened very long, and the Lord put his finger on this nasty, wicked, wretched thing I'd done. And I knew I was going to have to deal with it. I was going to have to go to the person and I was going to have to confess it. And I didn't want to do it. It was like, no! I didn't win that argument. He made me do it. I'm so glad he did. He controls you if you're his. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. Oh, love that will not let me go. He won't. He won't. You're in his grip. In spite of your sin, in spite of your ignorance, he has come and taken you in hand, apprehended you, laid hold of you, and you're not getting away. Why? Because he said, all the Father that gives to me, all the Father gives to me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. You're his. There's no escaping this Savior. There's no escaping. You can walk in his way or you can know his chastisement, but you're gonna, you're gonna, he's going to have his way with you. He, he's going to have his way. He is in control. Have you been apprehended by Christ? But not only that, are you seeking to apprehend Christ 
And is that your one great ambition? Are you seeking to apprehend that for which God has laid hold of you? And is that your one great ambition? Now, this is something to think about. Paul had a single-minded purpose. He said, this one thing I do. And you say, well, look, dude, i got to cut the grass. i got to go to work. i got to spank the kids a lot. I've got to do all this stuff. So obviously there's other things I do. Well, that's not what we're talking about. The question is, is everything under the lordship of Jesus? Now, he's a great lord. He's a mighty lord. And he has, he has a call upon your life that will require you to be involved in all sorts of different areas. But if you're a man of one thing, a woman of one thing, a child of one thing, everything's going to be oriented under him. Why do I go to work? Because my lord said I'm to provide for my own. Why do I spank my kids? Because my Lord said to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Why do I uh, fix the broken stuff at the house? Because I'm to love and serve my wife, and it's really kind of a drag when she can't wash dishes for you know, a week and a half. All these things. Why do I do all these things? It's under Jesus. It's this one ambition, this one thing I do. But there's something else that looks... Much different. There are people, there's even churchgoers who are people of many things, you see. For them, Jesus is part of their life, but he's not their life. You see, Jesus is a part of their life. Yeah, he's there. He's, he's really a very important part of their life, you know, very important. But, you know, there's other things, too. I mean, I've got, they've got social ambitions. They've got career objectives. They've got family plans, educational plans. I mean, they've got all this stuff, you know. And and to all this stuff, they add Jesus. Well, what do you do when these things come into conflict? Well, you know, it really is my life. So I'll just have to figure out, you know, which one to dial up and which one to dial down. So we've got this Little League tournament, you know, here, and it is on Sunday, you know, and it is something that's every year, and the kids may be playing for five or six years, so we'll just have to, that's kind of important, so we'll just kind of skip church, and we'll, so that you see what I'm talking about. These things come into conflict, Christ is dialed down, and this other objective is dialed up. They have other interests. He's part of their life, but he's not their life. He's not the center. Who is? They are. They are. They're the center. Not Jesus. It's, it might be difficult to detect from an outward perspective because they're in church. But they are the center. What can you say about such people? And let's be, let's be nice. Let's not be ugly. You can at least say this. They're not people of one thing. They're not single-minded people. What else can you say about them? You say, well, they're really not disciples either. Now, say, so that's getting a little ugly. Where do you get authority to say something like that? How about Luke 14, 33? So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath. Now, that sounds a lot like Paul, doesn't it? 
counting all things but loss. Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. If you're apprehended by Christ, Christ is now central. Everything else ordered, him, ordered under him, subjugated to him. Not perfectly, I count not myself to have apprehended, but habitually. This is what dominates me. This is how I live. All else counted as lost. The excellency of the, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, why don't people live like that? Do you know? Why don't people live like, why is Jesus not the center? They don't think he's worth it. Do you think he's worth it? Believers do. Yes. Not everyone does. Not everyone does. Why do people live the way they do? Because they think something else is better than Christ. Their own agenda, their own lusts, their trashy TV programs, their filthy friends, there's things, their stuff, their junk, their entertainment. But the heart of a true believer is more like this. He says, and we'll use the words of this hymn writer, if asked what of Jesus, I think. Let's ask him. What do you think of Jesus? First of all, he says, though still my best thoughts are but poor, but I'd say he's my meat and my drink. My life, my health and my store, my shepherd, my brother, my friend, my savior from sin and from thrall, my hope from beginning to end, my hope and my joy and my all. That's it. Are you a man, a woman, a child of one thing? What if that's not you? And be honest. Is that you? If that's not you, what do you do about it? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? You see, first of all is to be honest. You might call yourself a lot of things, but don't call yourself a disciple of Christ. That's the beginning, to be honest. Don't call yourself a disciple of Christ if the world is more important to you than Jesus, if you'd rather have the world than Jesus. And then consider what you've chosen. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? That's, the where, that's where this road ends. That's where the road you've, this, that you've taken, that's where it leads. And there's no exits. If you choose the world, it's got one destination. Losing your soul. Now, if you lost your job, you'd think that would be a big deal. And it would be a big deal. If you lost your house, that would really be a big deal. A hurricane comes through and you're homeless. That would be a big deal. What if you lost a child? Break your heart. That would be huge. Lost your spouse. Maybe you in a car wreck, lost a leg. Maybe in an accident, lose an eye. All those things are a big deal, but we're talking about losing your soul, losing yourself for eternity, forever and ever and ever. 
If you say, here's Jesus, here's the world, I'm going with the world. That's the path you're on. That's the path you're on. Be mindful of it. Consider your ways. The psalmist said, I thought on my ways and I turned my feet. I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. If you're on that path to perdition, may the Lord give you grace this morning to do the same. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord, yours, you're a gracious God. You're a wonderful Savior. Lord Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. Lord Jesus, you're worthy. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in you. Lord Jesus, you're gracious. I bless you that you came to, you, to us when we were running from you. Thank you that our sin was no hindrance to, your, to our salvation, that our ignorance was no obstacle to you, for you're mighty to save. We give you glory and praise and thanks. Lord, I pray for your dear people here. Lord, help them and strengthen them. I pray that by the mercies of God shown to them in Jesus, they would be moved to praise, to wonder, to joy, and to resolve, Lord, to, to present their bodies as living sacrifices to you. Lord, give them great joy and peace in believing. Lord, God of hope, by the power of the Spirit, strengthen them to run in the way of your commandments. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to lay hold of what you've called them to, help them to run with patience the race that is set before them, help them, looking, help them to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Lord, help your people, strengthen them, bless them. And Lord, for, for all here who don't yet know the Savior, I ask that you would prevent the, the devil from plucking the word from their hearts. But Lord, that you would grant fruit to your glory and honor and praise and to their good. Lord, we ask that you'd bless this assembly. Lord, that you'd deliver them from, from, uh, from Lord, the, the, uh, the devil, the flesh, and the world. That you'd strengthen them, help them, and bless them, and prosper them. Lord, I pray that you would use them in this community to shine forth the light of the gospel. Lord, I pray that they would know much fruit, Lord, in their, as they seek to live for you, as they seek to speak your word, that, Lord, you'd make them instruments of, uh, of your peace, instruments of salvation to, to those that they speak with. Lord, I pray for each family represented here, that you'd protect these marriages and that you'd strengthen them and help them and bless them and that they would grow in love for you and for each other. And I pray for uh, each young person in this assembly, Lord God, that you would cause them to be raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and that they would, they would come to Jesus and walk with him and love him and that you'd provide for them and help them and have mercy on them. Lord, thank you that you are the king of this kingdom 
and that you are ruling and reigning and that you will build your church and that the gates of hell shall not stand against it. Lord, we have confidence in you. Jesus shall reign. Thank you that you've placed us in this kingdom for such a time as this. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.